This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast decoding the signals broadcast by our nefarious alien overlords. Today we're asking, what's the deal with Taylor Swift? Why all the fuss? I'm Mark Linsenmeyer, not a fan of screaming and fighting and kissing in the rain. I'm Erica Spires, and I'm here to get Swifty. And I'm Brian Hurt, and I never thought I'd say this sentence, but I have a lot to say about Taylor Swift. And our guest. I'm Amber Padgett, and I swear I don't love the drama, it loves me. Welcome, Amber. Welcome, Amber. Thank you. Yeah, it's so nice to meet you. So you were a friend of a friend of Erica's referred to us because of your love of Taylor Swift. Do you want to kind of give us a little opening where you're coming from with regard to this artist? Have you been following her since her infancy? Yes. So I am of the age group where I am very close in age to Taylor Swift. So the evolution of her life and career has kind of followed my life as well. I first started listening to her when I think I was a junior in high school. And so, of course, her first album was a very high school type record, which some of those themes have continued throughout the remaining of her albums. But I've been a fan ever since then. It's kind of been interesting to see her go from a country artist to full on pop. And now I guess this new album we're kind of calling Indie which is interesting. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about Taylor Swift and I will try to take an objective position as much as I can, although I am a super fan. So it will be difficult for me not to be biased. <laughs> and you guys call yourselves Swifties, is that right? We do. So like, what kind of a Swiftie are you? Like, are you in a fan club? Have you gone to like a ton of her concerts? Like what kind of stuff is involved with being a Swiftie? So I am in a Facebook group. But I would say that I am a Swifty to an extent. Like, I'm not going to buy all of the deluxe albums when she releases seven or eight different versions so that I can get the different cover art. I'm not at that level of obsession. I've seen her in concert twice. I was planning to go to Loverfest. I guess I'm a little bit of a realistic Swifty. Like, I'm not crazy over the top, but I just love her music. So I think my fanhood is really rooted in the music itself. Erica, what are your priors? I've never seen her in concert, but I remember the first time I heard of her, I think it was probably when her first album was released. I don't remember listening to that album, but the reason I remember it is because my brother-in-law is a few years younger than me. And I remember he joined, I think he joined FFA, which if you guys don't know, Future Farmers of America. And he was never like a farm kid. So I was asking his mom, like, why is Matt joining FFA this year? And she goes, oh, they're going like at this conference that they're having, Taylor Swift's going to be there. And he thinks she's really cute. So he wants to go. And I was like, who's Taylor Swift? But it wasn't probably until her second album when, of course, Love Story like blew up and everybody's singing it, karaoke and everything that I really liked her, but it was a guilty pleasure. It was always a guilty pleasure until 1989 for me. You may not believe this, but between Amber and me, we have been to two Taylor Swift concerts. <laughs> I've listened to a lot of Taylor Swift, but most of it was in the last week getting ready for this podcast. That's your attitude towards music in general, but also because you just don't know anybody, right, in the relevant age group that would force you to listen to this. I think that's part of it, right? And as I listened to these albums, I realized I, I had heard some of these songs and I knew some of them. So I, in some cases, didn't know it was Taylor Swift. So that kind of shows where I'm coming from for this. What about you, Mark? My daughter is the window for this, who is 17 now and pretty much went straight from children's music to only Taylor Swift. 
And I was really trying, like, you got to discover, this is when she had three albums out, I believe. Like, you got to discover some other artists. <laughs> but I generally liked it better than the other equivalent pop stuff that she would play. I always liked the production values. And I just thought that she was a, you know, a songwriter that I could, even despite the age gap, is supremely relatable. Partially because she's doing some of the same things that Hollywood movies are doing. I mean, there's the song that she has that she's describing breaking up a wedding that is like exactly could be dialogue and direction for the equivalent romantic comedy. And the uh, You Belong to Me, this was one that was just played incessantly and that all like my daughter and her little cousins and stuff would just love to sing along to. And I had just seen a, a making of Frozen thing recently where they're talking about making it so... Even six-year-olds can get it. And then watching her in Miss Americana rejoicing about the fact that some little lick that she came up with, the little kids are going to just be hooting it like that. That's clearly something that she has in mind. It's not that it's completely least common denominator, but she is a pop stylist, and I appreciate that. Should we do some more opinion dumping before we jump into the, the literature and things while we're at it? Well, when we talk about TV shows, we're always careful not to have spoilers. Are, are we going to spoil her latest album? <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I think we can definitely spoil that. As long as we don't start singing all the songs, I think that's not too much of a spoil for it. But I can't promise that I won't sing some of it because they're just so darn catchy. Amber, do you have a favorite era? Do you have a favorite album? What is the thing that you most hook onto about her songwriter her persona? So that's a very interesting question. And that is an ongoing debate among the Swifties. Every time a new album comes out, it is, oh, this is the best one. This is the real Taylor. We've been waiting for this. <laughs> I've seen it probably the most with Folklore, more than I've ever seen it with any other album. That conversation I find a little bit frustrating because it almost diminishes her past success, especially going down the path of, oh, well, this is the real Taylor. Well, was Lover not the real Taylor? I mean, you know, she's putting this out into the world and telling us that these songs represent her life, her feelings. I think Folklore is a very mature album. And I think a lot of people in my age group that have grown up with her now are like, okay, this album is where we're at in our lives. This album does not appeal to the six-year-olds. I don't know what song on this album little girls would be screaming about. Every album that comes out, I think is awesome. And I love it. And I stream it and play it until I can't possibly listen to it anymore. If I had to pick a favorite overall, Red is probably my favorite. And that might just be because it came out when I was in college. And I, I don't know, some of it I think might be tied to my personal life where I was at that point And just the songs resonated with me. All Too Well is a song on that album that is kind of a favorite among Swifties. And that's probably my favorite song of hers. So, Well, that's so interesting, Amber. We were given two different lists of ranking Taylor Swift's albums. Did you find those for us? I don't think I did. Was that your link? I found those. I thought they were really helpful because as I was also going through, Brian, I didn't listen to every single song off every single album, but I did listen to pieces of every album enough to get an idea, I thought, and make my own. I was trying to make my own opinion about how I would rank them. And then I came across these two lists. And what struck me is the first one I read, I was like, yeah, I get behind most of this. The second one, I was like, are you kidding me? And so I thought, this is something we have to we have to discuss. So the two lists, one is from NME and the other is from Insider. And they disagree wildly, but both managed to put Red right in the middle. So you're wrong, Amber. That's what we... No, I'm just saying it's it's just more... <laughs> 
illustration of the variance of, of people's perspective on these albums. Yes, your opinion is wrong. <laughs> I see that the one ranks Speak Now as number one, which is interesting. And a lot of Swifties do like Speak Now the most. I think for me, that one's a little bit tough because I think there's songs on that album that I find a little bit silly, particularly the one that you referenced, Mark, that is actually the title track, Speak Now, about her going in and breaking up the wedding. And then there's another song on that album called Better Than Revenge, which I think Taylor has said that she regrets a little bit because it's a very kind of mean girl type song. So I always find that interesting when people put Speak Now at the top of their album list. There are some great songs on that album, but as a whole, it's definitely not my number one. Or Enchanted being another one off that, which yep. is we're at a party and I see you and you're so wonderful. And I wonder if you have a girlfriend and it's again, like exactly like what would be in the Disney movie Enchanted or, you know, something like that. I remember reading an essay of somebody saying how, you know, when he was growing up that Bruce Springsteen taught him how to feel. And I feel like this is training for a whole generation of girls of what emotions are and how deep they can be and how they are shaped. It's both aspirational and exemplary. And yeah, I could really see this having an impact. So just so people have a frame of reference, the article from NME is every single album ranked and rated. The other one is from insider.com. And it was all of Taylor Swift's albums ranked from least to most iconic. So to be fair, they might have changed their mind if it wasn't about what was the most iconic Taylor Swift as opposed to what they thought was the best. But I'm just going to give like a quick rundown of what those were. So an enemy from worst to best, we got Reputation. Her very first album was uh, ranked second worst. Then Fearless, Lover, Speak Now, Red, Folklore, and 1989. And I could pretty much get behind most of that. The Insider article talking about the least to most iconic. The bottom is the self-titled album. Then Folklore, way down there, which I think it's pretty iconic so far. Like, So Folklore is the fastest album of 2020 to sell 1 million units in the United States. And that came out from Forbes. So I think it's interesting that this one they're saying is not very iconic at all. That is followed by Fearless. Uh, isn't it too early to say? <laughs> to I really totally <laughs> agree, Mark. I was going to say, I think it should have been excluded from the list. How iconic is this thing that came out yesterday? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> it's like saying Princess Leia's buns were iconic in 1977. It's like, <laughs> no, give it a little time. Then they have Lover. Then they have Red. Then 1989 at number three. At the number two spot, we have Reputation. And the number one spot is Speak Now because they say it best represents the evolution of Swift and her music. And I would definitely not agree with that. I agree with you, Erica. I think some people do say that because that is the first album that she wrote all her own songs. And she was very outspoken about that because she's always thought of herself as a songwriter. And then and I'm sure we'll talk about why it's so popular to hate Taylor Swift or to hate on Taylor Swift. But I think she got some people kind of coming out and saying, well, you have co-writers on your song. So why are you acting like you're this great, amazing songwriter who, you know, writes everything yourself? And so then with Speak Now, she was like, okay, well, then I'll show you. And she wrote them all herself. So that might be where some of that's coming from. But so that makes a lot of sense. Amber, do you find that it impacts your experience as a listener knowing that she wrote something rather than just being a performer of a song? 
It's kind of hard for me to answer that question because she doesn't live in my brain or world or experience on the same playing field with any other musician that I listen to. Like she's just in this other world for me. So I think because I've listened to her since the start, I knew she wrote her own music from the start. So I don't know if I can answer that objectively, but I guess to me, it feels like her songs, they feel more authentic because she wrote them. From what I understand that she does not put up with co-writers who second guess her lyrics. And maybe that's even something that grew over the years that to start off, maybe they were. It seems like that would be helpful if you were a 16-year-old to have somebody at least do some quality control. And I really think that she subjects herself. It just everything, even this recent stuff, it's clearly collaborative. Like if you're watching the documentaries and things, she's working with a producer who's coming up with the beats. It's not like she's playing every instrument herself. She's not that kind of you know, she is a primarily a writer with a voice that is nice enough to really push everything through and that people can relate to. I like the fact that she doesn't oversing, but the way this was put in some of the critical articles I was looking at, at least several years ago is like, can she sing in tune live? She's not an American Idol winning vocalist, despite her vocal power and her ability to do these high notes. But yeah, so she is the voice. She is a sense of taste that goes through everything. But it's definitely like even the most recent album, which is being sold as being less produced, is so clearly way more produced than anything that I've ever done. (laughs) You know, it's clearly still has a giant budget behind it. And she's always been in that place of, I'm going to say, privilege of a record company or, or herself being able to spend a lot of money to make sure that this reaches the level of sonic quality that you would get out of a major Disney motion picture or something like that. Yeah, that's a good point is like, how much does she get credit for how good, well, how good I think a lot of her music is versus she does seem to be the one who chooses producers. I may be wrong about that, but it seems like she's always had a knack for being like, I like this person. I like their sound. I like the things they do. And I either want to collaborate with them on a song or I want this producer to collaborate with on this album. So I think overall that actually means that she's really smart about that. And it's, I don't think it's a discredit to her songwriting. I think if anything, asking for help on something you already have a good idea on is amazing. Like we say that in every other business, not all collaborations are great, but when you pick the right people, they can really elevate something. But I can also see how people might say like, oh, well, how much is she responsible for this versus the people that she works with? Pretty fast to blame her when they don't like it. You're right. Hey, look at you with your opinions. Brian, I am more interested to see this latest album. Would you recommend it? Yes or no? And then like looking back on her evolution, what did you enjoy or not? You have very strong opinions in it as, as you being like the one coming into this without much knowledge of it. I'm, I'm really interested. I don't have super strong opinions about music, in part because I don't have the encyclopedic background of, say, others on this podcast. I have pretty stunted music taste, and I don't listen to that much. And I enjoyed it well enough, and I did try to listen to everything once and to quite a bit multiple times with this idea that it's really hard to appreciate something the first time through. You're just sort of figuring out what it means I enjoyed it well enough. I might listen to it again. I'll recommend it to future Brian. But beyond that, I don't know other people's tastes well enough either. I definitely get what the fuss is with her. Her talent is undeniable listening to her music. And if it's your jam, I mean, there are other celebrity musicians who I just don't get. And maybe I haven't given them a fair shake. I think her critics, some have an axe to grind and some are trying to be different. And there are a million reasons not to like anyone, I suppose. But to say that she's not talented is just seems patently absurd to me. 
Amber, what do you think about the criticism she's received over the years? What are the points? Because there's certainly been a lot of it. So I won't go into all of it. But like, what are the things that stick out at you the most as either just really frustrating because people don't get it or just completely unwarranted? Or is there any that is warranted? I think there's definitely things that are warranted. No one's perfect. And she's been open about, she's made a lot of mistakes, you know, over the course of her career. I think some of it is partly due to the fact that she started out so young. And I know there's theories that, you know, when people become famous, the age they become famous at is like the age they're stuck in forever. And so is she a 16-year-old now living in a 31-year-old's body, which is, I have some thoughts about maybe why she continues to have high school related themes in a lot of her music even now. But You know, I think that the criticism that confuses me the most is why it's cool to hate Taylor Swift or why it's cool to not like her. And that seems to be dying down a little bit. I think it was really at its peak when the whole Kim and Kanye situation happened. And I guess it didn't seem like it was that big of a deal. And yet what it created and this just firestorm of controversy and cancel Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift is over party was like this trending hashtag on Twitter. Amber, can you tell people what that controversy was who haven't seen maybe Miss Americana? Taylor and Kanye West have had this fraught relationship ever since 2009 at the VMAs, the MTV Video Music Awards, Taylor was accepting the award for, I think it was video of the year. Kanye jumped on stage and announced to everyone that, no disrespect to Taylor, but Beyonce should have won the award for, I think it was for the single ladies video. So that has created this back and forth between Taylor and Kanye West. They seem to be on good terms and they're not on good terms. So it all kind of came to a head when Kanye was releasing a song and I don't know the title of what that song was off the top of my head. We're not here to promote Kanye West. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. It's, it's been so considerate of Kanye for his recent political activities to, to so thoroughly and retroactively discredit him that Taylor Swift will forever be the winner of this battle. But go on. Yeah, thank, thank you, Kanye, for that. I think it was from Famous, his song Famous. That's correct, yes. So there is a line in the song where Kanye raps, I think me and Taylor may still have sex. And the controversy is surrounding the fact that he called her to get her approval on this line in the song. And unbeknownst to Taylor, Kim Kardashian was recording the phone call. So according to Taylor, she did give approval to that line. But then when the song came out, there was an additional line that said, I made that bitch famous. She was vocal about not being okay with the fact that he put that in the song. And then Kim released a, I don't know what it was, 19, 20 second clip from the phone call, basically saying, look, she approved it. Here's proof. And everyone just completely turned on Taylor. And there are like four or five more points back and forth, but we can refer folks to articles to... Yeah, there are, yes. <laughs> but chanting of fuck Taylor Swift at... Exactly. Kanye concerts or wherever. It seems like all this hate and drama, it's all... We're arguing about metadata. This is not the music, really, that we're talking about. We're the personalities and the beefs and getting on stage and the rest of it. Do people hate her music or do they just... Hate, I mean, hate is such a loaded word, but is it really just the whole package that they are not buying into? One of my best friends, who is the nicest person in the entire world, 
hates her, like absolutely cannot stand her. And we've talked about it and I still don't really understand why. For him, it's more of like a personality thing almost that makes him not then want to respond to the music. I can understand that point of view. I think some of the songs that made Taylor famous and some of the things in the media were all around who was she dating and what song was going to be on her album that was about this boyfriend or ex-boyfriend. There's a song about Joe Jonas and there's a song about Jake Gyllenhaal. I mean, there's all these famous boyfriends that she had. That's an easy thing to pick on and be like, that's stupid. Why are you writing songs about your very public relationships and not necessarily being afraid or kind of trying to play coy. Like, I'm not going to say who it's about, but then there's these very obvious clues that, you know, a simple Google search can tell you who it's actually about. Don't you feel like dudes do that all the time, though, in their songs and nobody like... Yes. So I think, and she has said things like that before, too. It's like, first of all, what is she supposed to write songs about if it's not the things that are happening in her life? Yes, she's a public figure. And yes, she dated a lot of people. But she also was in her late teens, early 20s, happened to be in the spotlight. And yes, all of the songs. I mean, think about John Mayer and, you know, some of the other, you know, artists that we listen to and that are serial daters. There's no criticism. There's just an expectation. Oh, yeah, of course, that's what they would write about. So I think maybe some of the criticism and dislike comes from she kind of, especially early in her career, had this like squeaky clean, blonde hair, blue eye, like she got spit out of a pop star or a, you know, (laughs) attractive person machine. With all the eating disorders that went into uh, making that happen. Oh, poor thing. I know. And I think it really, and it came to a head with the whole 1989 era and the the girl click that, you know, the girl squad that she had of all these other, you know, celebrities. And I think that she has come out now and said that she wanted to act like she wasn't the puppet master or the mastermind behind her own success. She wanted to kind of put out this image that there's this group of people that are kind of orchestrating things behind the scene. And she just shows up and, you know, she sings and she looks pretty, but she's not the one who's strategizing and manipulating every situation. And she was, I mean, and she is very much, this album release is a complete departure from how she normally does her other album releases where if only you guys knew the level of commitment some of the Swifties have to dissecting every image that Taylor Swift posts on Instagram. If an album is about to come out, oh wait, she posted a picture of a fence. There's seven holes in the fence. Does that mean that the album's going to come out on the seventh day of this month? Maybe it's about track seven on the album. Maybe the, the track seven is going to be called Fences. I mean, it's that level. Wow. Yes. And she... She creates that because she does actually release these Easter eggs and clues purposefully to create this buzz and this anticipation. I don't know if you guys have watched the You Need to Calm Down video that had all kinds of different stars from different sectors of the entertainment industry in it. But there's a, there's a bunch of Easter eggs in that video about the rest of the album. So she totally plays into it. She creates this. And I think now, and you saw it a lot on Miss Americana, she owns it. She's like, I am the mastermind of my own success. And... We wouldn't even be having this conversation if I was a man. And it's definitely different than how she used to be. But I think people have already made up their minds. And I don't know if if the people that really feel that strongly about her can be convinced at this point. I just felt even learning about her at the point of just post speak now that she was just this genius charisma monster representing some... (laughs) Not being critical of the songs, but just that, like, usually you think of over-marketing as somehow making it impersonal, like that we're pumping out widgets. But the fact that, no, actually, she is meeting the Beatles-established 
criterion of being a personal singer-songwriter, but yet has that level of, of savvy, it's just a scary thing to have in the world. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think she's at her best when she is singing songs that she completely owns in some of her albums where she completely owns that whatever the message is. And it can be about regret or feeling bad for herself or being angry at somebody. That's fine. But like when you feel like there's that authenticity of this is really how she feels and she's not trying to like do it for anybody else's sake. Was it on Miss Americana when she was talking about me and how that could be something that little girls would attach themselves to. And it almost felt like something that she also just needed to do for herself because she was stuck in this older body, still feeling like I finally need to own up to I'm freaking awesome and nobody else is like me. And it wasn't annoying. Like you, I like expected it to be annoying, but it was just so sweet and honest, I thought. I want to know what your friend thinks about that. He probably hates it. <laughs> he probably hasn't listened to it or he hates it. I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to ask him about these later albums. Me was an interesting first single, I thought, for her to release off of Lover. It is definitely not a favorite among the Swifties. And it's funny because a lot of her first singles off of albums, like off 1989, it was Shake It Off, which now I never want to hear that song again. It is so overplayed. I mean, it, it was fun and cute when it came out and it's cute when she does it live, but it's had its time. But with me, it's funny because there's a line that was that came out in the single that is toward the end and it says, hey, kids, spelling is fun. And then they do the little the little part. It's not on the album. She took it out before the song came on the album. Like it was in the single, but it's not in the version that's actually on the full album. So a lot of the fans were like, why are you doing like still doing these gimmicky kind of things? And I was in that same kind of mindset. I'm like, gosh, this song, I'm like, really? This is the song you chose to put out? But then after you see how she talks about it in Miss Americana, and you kind of see how she had this vision for it just being this fun, crazy, wacky song that, yes, little kids might like. But it also seems, like you're saying, Erica, that it's very true to her. Like, she is kind of a weird, quirky, you know, she's like talking about riding on a unicorn and, you know, I mean, all these these things that you just wouldn't necessarily expect. It definitely made me think of the song differently. And I think that's sometimes where I get a little frustrated with the like, oh, that's not the real Taylor. Now we've got the real Taylor. Well, I think that is the real Taylor in a lot of ways. She <laughs> yeah. is that kind of quirky out there kind of person. So I also tend to attribute more, and this is probably a function of her seductive power, but I attribute more irony than probably is actually present, you know, because I know she's smart. Me made me think of another thing my daughter listens to a lot of is Megan Trainor more recently, which almost every one of her songs, and I think this is typical of a lot of sort of girl power songs, you know, is positive self-esteem and don't let them get, you know, exactly the kind of message from Shake It Off and things. But I felt like by the time of me, Taylor Swift is actually kind of playing with that trope in a way that is slightly subverts it, you know, that is by just putting me, you know, in giant capital letters, like, yes, okay, this is making fun of the concept of narcissism because that's my, like, my son's reaction when he hears Megan Trainor is like, why are all of the songs so arrogant? Like, oh no, because it's a young woman reacting to a system that has systematically put down people like her for years and and this is giving girls a wit no no it just but it still does sound like they're both true yeah one thing i want to ask about is this idea of her evolving style both musically and in terms of her persona and if you want to call it her shtick and it, it comes out in the videos as well as just how she comports herself publicly and how we see her. I get this idea of going from being 
country to mainstream and evolving out of that country roots that she had. But I do feel like part of this double standard that we've already been talking about is this idea that female artists need to keep changing what they're doing in a way that maybe male artists don't. And we will tolerate and even desire male artists to keep doing the same thing. And I know enough Megan Trainer and enough Lord to know that they're doing it too, right? We just demand a different thing with every album. Music seems to be that way more than other things. And we let Martin Scorsese make one movie after the next. But we also let Bruce Springsteen, as a 70-year-old man, wear the same damn blue jeans and a t-shirt he's been wearing since his 20s. Why do we demand this from Taylor Swift? Would you be happy, Amber, with an album that came out that was in the same vein as, as the previous one and you got more of the same? Or do you also... Have you been able to gauge how much novelty you require from one album to the next? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think for me, I can see threads of her old songs in the new songs. Like I can see threads of Taylor all the way through each album. Like to me, they're not as different as they may appear. It's funny because there's this little game that the people in my Swifty fan club are doing where they're trying to tie folklore songs, like find a match for each folklore song's song to a song on one of her previous albums like okay cardigan is the all too well and you know they're trying to make all these connections and some of it i think is probably a little bit of a stretch but i think there is some truth to it i think that there's a lot of common themes throughout all of taylor's music and some of this too i think may contribute to a little bit of the criticism of her personality because she has a lot of songs about being an outcast or not fitting in and then at the same time, she's this mega superstar, popular, you know, successful person. So it's kind of like, okay, well, have you ever really felt? I'm sure she has. But I guess I don't necessarily expect each album to be different from the last because they all still feel like Taylor to me. Just different facets maybe of who she is or different places she's at in her life. I would be happy if she did another like true country album. I think that would be fun and cool and interesting. I think folklore is not country, but it's, you know, it's it's kind of hearkening back to her roots in a way. I think Reputation probably was the biggest curveball that the fans maybe had. I think that one was, you know, like when she came out with Look What You Made Me Do. And, and there's a line in the song where she says, you know, the old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. Why? Because she's dead. That was very much like, a, oh, wow, like she's done with everything that came before. But I don't know. It didn't really necessarily ring true when you actually listen to the song. So I guess I don't expect the evolution because I kind of see common threads and common themes throughout all the albums even if it's not necessarily the songs that become the most popular or get, you know, put on the radio. Melodically, she does a five to one a lot. In a lot of songs, right? So just for example, I noticed that Lover has that, Archer has that, both from the Lover album. So tall and handsome as hell, da da da, right? So there's that. I knew you were trouble when you walked in and shake it off, shake it off. She does a lot of these leaps. In a lot of pop music, people don't like to, they don't like to do leaps of like sometimes bigger than a th like, well, I mean, yes, they'll go up to a fifth, but not that frequently, right? She does a lot of, she doesn't always vocally flip, but sometimes it's that. And maybe that's the country influence of that too. It's almost like this cry break feeling. But sometimes like when I was listening to them, I'm like, man, thematically, that's so similar. But then I'm like, yeah, we have 12 notes and it's pop music. What do we expect? She's put out how many albums? Yes, some of them are going to kind of sound alike. And maybe she also does some of that intentionally because she likes that sound of going from a higher note to a lower note and the emotion that it can evoke to do that. Well, if you're writing the catchiest melodies you can come up with, 
How many of those do you think you could actually come up with that are numerically distinct from each other? I think any artist is going to, with a strong identity, a strong melodic sense, whose career is based on her melodies, is going to face this. And so she can tell more in different stories. And, you know, she's already very lyrically oriented. And now with this expanding more into the basically writing fiction. So that's one way we wouldn't maybe hold somebody who has like a male country singer with a four note range. We expect that that person is going to be dillening through everything. And there's really not going to be the kind of, there's going to be a lot of sameness, but because she's based on catchy melodies, they're going to start to repeat and they're already starting to repeat, or she has to keep changing the underpinnings, changing the production style, changing the approach, changing the subject matters that she's writing about, changing the image, because there's going to be that identifiable. And if she drifted too far from that, if she was like, listen to really immerse herself in Thelonious Monk and a lot of weird jazz and was singing different vocal leaps than you would expect, then people wouldn't like it as much. I mean, maybe that will be the way she ultimately goes and she'll become more of a a jazz singer with a larger chordal vocabulary. It seems like a fairly typical progression for somebody who's musically aware and interested in new things. You're right, Mark. And what I'm saying is not really a criticism of, I'm not saying she has bad songwriting. I just, with anybody, you listen to enough of their stuff in a row, you're going to start to notice some similarities. And I think, yeah, by putting a brand new production value on it, it can sound very different, at least upon the first couple of listens. I got to throw out there, though, like when I got to Reputation in the mix, I was just like, what? I was not a fan. I feel like there's pandering happening there. It's like, ooh, I really like these artists. And like, whereas before it was like, she kind of picked maybe more artists that already jived with her style. Like all of a sudden she's like throwing in some like, I don't know, it was like trap or dubstep or something. And it just felt really awkward to me. And that one did not feel authentic to me. I mean, maybe it was, maybe that's exactly how she was feeling at the time and more power to her for it. But that was just not my cup of tea. I think she lost herself a little bit in that time. I mean, I think that was kind of like her, she says nobody saw her for the two years that she was writing and working on that album because it was right after the Kim and Kanye thing happened and the, you know, cancel Taylor Swift and all that. So yeah, I think that one is one that it took me some time to appreciate that album. There are certain songs like New Year's Day, which is the last song on the album, which is very classic Taylor. Yeah, that's a nice Very different than some of the other songs on the album. But again, that was another album where the first single, Look What You Made Me Do. Yeah, it's just it's just kind of, I think, where some of the criticism of her kind of playing the victim comes from. It's It comes from some of those kinds of songs. Look at all these things that have happened to me and now watch out. Now I'm going to, you know, get you back or <laughs> somehow. And there's a lot of references specifically to Kim and Kanye in that song. And there's some in the other songs on that album as well. But I appreciate Reputation, and I have to say, live, that was one of the concerts that I went to. I went to the Reputation tour. I mean, the production value on that show is just incredible. I mean, it is an incredible show. So I think it's one of those albums that translates really well to a big production. I mean, she has a huge inflatable snake on the stage and the, you know, the costumes, and it's pretty incredible what she did with that tour. But the album, yeah, it's definitely not, it's not one of my top ones for sure. I mean, it's hard for me again to not impute irony to, you know, that she has a good sense of humor. I just can't see these things as honest to goodness, heartfelt fuck you songs that it's more, you know, of course she has a very keen self-consciousness of what taking a raw emotion and putting it into a song, how that transforms it. 
you know, especially given her position and then making a multi-million dollar video on top of it where you throw in all this weird sci-fi stuff. I just think it's it's a matter of having fun with the material that is at hand. And it just seems like such a, you know, so much of the story of her turning to pop is that the pop world is weird, right? You know, of course, you could say the idiosyncrasies and, and weird things about the country pop world and something, but there was something like simple and relatable about that, whereas the pop world is by its nature, everything has to be constantly fresh, constantly new, and it's now embracing politics in, I don't want to say interesting ways, because... <laughs> As soon as everything gets pushed to the masses, any nuance is lost. Like, that's sort of the nature of the whole thing. But the people that she's getting lumped in with as a super pop star, there's so much there that is, in fact, I think she left a lot of opportunities on the table for satirizing or poking at the weirdness. You know, it's just like if you're in the 80s and actively at the time, like pointing at the 80s fashions and thinking about how we in our modern age would be laughing at the 70s and 80s. Like people should always be doing that right now about what is popular right now. And I feel like (laughs) that's a little of what she was doing. And the pop world is really fractured also, more than it's ever been. And if you don't have haters, you're not really doing it right. And I think that's just a transition for her. I mean, it clearly, she seems to be very open in these interviews and in, in her documentary, this idea of being universally adored. Nobody is. Kanye's not, and I don't think he wants to be. And it kind of sucks to be universally adored because you're not doing anything interesting. Speaking of these interviews, can you interview someone without describing their apartment and what they're wearing and what their makeup is? <laughs> and I swear, I knew there was a reason I stopped reading Rolling Stone interviews. Jesus Christ. I got to set the stage for you. Maybe I'll tell you about what lunch I ate on the way over to the interview and what mindset I, the interviewer, was in. Like, I had forgotten about that, but you immediately, yes, immediately, you're, you're bringing back memories of old like Marie Claire's I used to read or something. I just wanted to get into a second about 1989 because not only do I think it was her best album, but also it allowed me at least to look at her as a songwriter outside of a performer, largely because of the Ryan Adams album that came out where he just redid the album in his own way. Did any of you get a chance to listen to any of that? So the songs he co-wrote with her? He covered the entire album, which is weird, right? Because like Ryan Adams, one would think like, oh, he's a big Taylor Swift fan. Well, evidently, yes. And they did work together before, but he became a big fan of this album. And it was, it came out, I guess Mandy Moore was his wife at the time. And she was listening to a lot of Taylor Swift. He got into it from that. But then when they were having their divorce, he was listening to 1989 and he just, he bought himself like a little floor track recorder and started recording some of the songs just because he wanted to. And he liked it. And so he got his band together and like they did the whole album and they were really just doing it. This is all in a good Rolling Stone article. He was doing it for himself. He wasn't planning on releasing it. And, you know, he told Taylor about it and she listened to some of it and she was like really excited by it because she loves him as a songwriter and seemed to be really on board with it. So he ended up releasing the entire thing. And in particular, so I recommend this album, number one, if you like Ryan Adams. Some of you might want to slash your wrist when you listen to Ryan Adams, and I understand that. But he did some wonderful covers, his Blank Space, Bad Blood, and in 
my opinion, my favorite is Wildest Dreams. He does change a couple lyrics here and there, but for the most part, it's completely true to the original. He talks about how he actually wrote it, thinking of it like we're in a parallel universe. And these are the songs. They're just in a different universe. And this is how they would be portrayed in that universe as opposed to the one that we're currently in. So does his doing that project say something about sort of the portability of her her songs that he's just like most of her listeners, you know, in, in terms of relating and wanting to sing along. It's just that he happens to also have a bunch of studio equipment and talent and facility to just pump those out in a public way that the average listener singing to themselves would not. I think it definitely says that she's not just any regular pop artist. If somebody else can sit down and take those lyrics and those melodies and create something very different, but also still quite true to the form that they were originally in, that I think that shows that she's a great songwriter. I mean, has anybody done that to a Beyonce album? I was kind of wondering, you know, in clearly the whole thing with Kanye and that Beyonce got had her, her rightful award stolen from her that kicked this whole thing off is a very politically charged thing. And, and I, as of this morning, I wasn't completely sure if I could name a Beyonce song, even though I know my daughter's played some for me, but you know, it's never been someone. So I went and I listened to the, you know, Beyonce's top several and all the single ladies, Brian points out being the one that was beat. Those are not things that I can relate to. And I, I don't know if it's because I'm racist. <laughs> If there's some whole musical background that I'm not sufficiently clued into, you know, I just wonder, we're making these criticisms of people's tastes on political grounds, right? People think it's okay for a male artist to do this, but a female artist has to change her style all the time. All that means is that people listening, whether male or female, tend to be okay with Bruce Springsteen having a consistent sound or whatever, but expect Taylor Swift to change it up. There are double standards and there are things in our whatever unenlightened state we are in politically that's going to, of course, show up in our tastes. But is criticizing the tastes, which, you know, most people see as sacrosanct, just personal, like nothing that could be argued against, is that actually a good route to changing people's politics, right? Is the fact that so many people feel that they can identify with and gravitate toward Taylor Swift's sound is that somehow should be a subject to serious criticism on grounds of racial disparities, you know, these general political arguments. Fire after an hour <laughs> into this podcast, whether we can or cannot debate matters. Maybe uh, maybe we can leave this for another topic, but I, I wanted to bring it up here because I feel like it really complicates the issue of whether you like any given thing that she has done or how somebody's interpreted it or the pop that she's competing against. Going through this exercise made me reflect on that kind of stuff quite a bit. I have an answer for that, and I don't know if it's complete or, or even a good one, but this is my, my first thought is, do I like her music? Yes, but not all of it. But why do I like most of it? Probably because I grew up in a similar, like I grew up in Southern Missouri. There was folk slash folk country music all around me. So yes, I'm going to identify with that on a, on a level of the heart, right? And you were popular yet quirky, I bet. Well, <laughs> yes, Mark. I have been told that now. I, I don't know if I'm kind of popular. I don't know. But also there is a huge amount of, in R&B and hip hop, people sample each other's music a lot. So yes, there is a tradition of doing that within that. And also just like in the pop world, sampling things. You could really call pop almost anything, right? That's a whole other discussion. Like what is pop music? Clearly hip hop is very popular. So we can call that pop music in one sense. So I think it's probably less, I don't know, argue with me on this, less likely that you sample each other's stuff when it's folk rock, maybe. 
I don't know. Like, yeah, people cover each other's songs, but do they sample them? And I, that's, I feel like there's some similarities there. But I don't know. I'm not a huge Beyonce fan. I know. This is a big sticking point with my husband and I. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody has done a whole album of hers and I just don't know about it. John Mayer has done a great cover of her song XO. If anyone's interested, not the whole album, just a song. But Amber, any sort of thoughts to wrap us up here on whether related to the political bombshell I, I dropped or, or anything else? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's tough for me. I think it. this kind of reminds me of in college, I took this history class about British pop music in the 1960s and, and leading up to. And there was this whole conversation about around how black artists in the United States were doing a lot of the same types of music as what the Beatles eventually became popular for. But it took this white, all-male boy band, basically, to be able to make that music resonate with the masses. And so I think there's a bit of truth to that. If you think about Taylor Swift, I mean, in just as Erica said, I mean, there's so many, I think, people that can identify with her experience that are kind of the voices that often get heard and get given. I think the kind of background and privileged kind of position that Taylor Swift represents is one that a lot of people who have power in this country, you know, relate to and, and come from. And so I think that probably leads to her and people, artists like her, having that kind of ability to have their music kind of transcend and other people want to, like the Ryan Adams example, want to cover it. And you could also say that maybe what Beyonce does is in a different realm. I mean, it's, a, you know, to, I mean, I am a Beyonce fan. I think she's just one of the most incredible performers of my lifetime. And I think, I guess Taylor's music to me feels just a little bit more accessible to the masses. And maybe that is a political statement. But I, I guess I'm thinking of it more as accessible from the sense of I would almost put Beyonce more on like not a pedestal, but just like to me, she's just kind of like a juggernaut. There will never be another Beyonce is kind of how I, I view it. And I love Taylor Swift, but I think that there may not be another artist exactly like her with the same types of, you know, songwriting talent and all of that. But her brand, I guess, is just a little bit more mundane. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that doesn't, that's not exactly what I'm trying to say, but I don't know what, what makes her and her type of music more one that would want to be covered by other artists. It's an interesting thought, though. Mark throwing out bombs all the time, man. Well, I, I'll, I mean, I, I guess I could immediately just answer what I think you were just asking, Amber, is if your music is really based like a commercial jingle, all the worst comparisons, even though I really admire her music, but based on just melody and fitting those words into your mouth, then that's always going to be way more portable than something that relies on sheer vocal prowess and high production values. That even though Taylor Swift has high production values, it ultimately just comes down to, is it a hummable melody? Is it a singable melody? And I don't have a problem saying that she excels in that greater than Beyonce or certainly Kanye. But of course, there are many other reasons that one would want to praise an artist and uh, lots of room for us to talk more about this kind of thing in the future. This afternoon, my husband and I will be recording for YouTube and Instagram, our cover of Exile. He's playing guitar and playing fiddle. We're both singing. And my thought on this cover was to make it like a bit more country, but then like we kind of get kind of rocky. My husband used to front a metal band and I definitely don't really sing like rock music. <laughs> so it's kind of fun. But my idea for the cover is it like it's all one big crescendo. So if you listen to it, make sure you just don't listen to the beginning and think, oh, that's it. No, we grow, man. 
I'll send it to you. Have you you thought about adding you saying, I'm a little bit country, and then him singing, I'm a little bit rock and roll. (laughs) But we're not siblings in there. I had to throw that in. Are you old enough, Amber, to have seen any Donnie and Marie? (laughs) I did. Reruns, but yes, I did. (laughs) If you could leave us with something that you would like for people who are not Taylor Swift fans or something that you think that others may have missed out on because they weren't watching her as closely as you, what would that be? I think her Tiny Desk concert is really, really good. And it's a lot different than a lot of the other artists that do that. It was just not really nicely done. She does, you know, she's singing all these songs acoustically and it it's just very authentic seeming. Let's wrap up our public version, but we can share some more thoughts about particular songs or whatever for our supporter audio, which people can get at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. I think this was a pretty successful experiment. Thank you, Amber, for joining us for it. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's fun. It's good to meet you. Thank you. So long. Bye, listeners. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.